Today we're covering the last of Zechariah's eight visions that he had in a single night. <clears throat> and it truly is a dramatic production of heaven, as we'll talk about in a second. But you can open your Bibles there to Zechariah chapter 6, and we'll be studying verses 1 through 8. And by way of introduction, I will say this, that one of the greatest blessings of having the honor of preaching and studying and teaching the Word of God is that you learn. You learn. That is one of the greatest blessings of all, especially when you preach or teach or study a whole book of Scripture thoroughly. That experience, that encounter with the Word of God in such concentrated form, it shapes and molds and changes you. And I hope that's not just for the teacher, but it is for everyone who studies the Word of God, everyone in a Bible study, everyone doing their daily devotions, everyone listening to the Word of God Sunday by Sunday, and hopefully reading it every day of the week, that as you reflect upon what you've studied, what you've been taught, what you have learned, that you can notice a shift in your thinking, not a, a shift into errancy, of course, but a shift that deepens our understanding of how we think, of how we worship, and how we live. In my own personal life, as I think about different books of the Bible, I know that I began studying the Bible one way, and I was one way, but by the end of that study, it had reformed the way that I think. It's crafted and, and reshaped my thinking and focused it more deeply, whether that be the book of Acts and understanding the nature of the church better, or Ephesians, the role of the church, or Second Samuel and the Davidic covenant, or the book of Exodus and the nature of God and the nature of his name and the nature of redemption. Or it could be something in the Old Testament like Jonah and understanding the depth of God's love for not just Jews but Gentiles, or Nahum, the counterbalance of that and understanding the full character of God, or Haggai with the notion of perspective and priority. All of these different things, they just keep reforming, keep molding, keep focusing you, and you should notice in your life that you began studying a book one way and you ended up different. And it's healthy to reflect a little bit on these things so that you can see your own growth in Christ as he has been causing the growth in you by the word through the Holy Spirit. And with that in mind, as we think about the book of Zechariah, we understand God remembers. And I hope you have been learning that lesson well. I hope you've been learning the lesson of how God is faithful and how he remembers all things to the end times. And we've talked about many things that God has in store for his people. But one striking reality, at least for me, as we think about the book of Zechariah, is in addition to all of those things, the reality are remembering and renewing our minds in the reality of the supernatural. You have in Zechariah all of this visionary activity, all of these visions which talk about angels and God sending the angels and doing things with the angels. In fact, Zechariah's favorite title for God in the book, he uses it over 50 times. The book is small, 14 chapters, and he uses this title for God over 50 times is Yahweh of hosts. Why? Because there is a consistent reminder that God commands all of heaven. And how do we know he remembers? How do we know he will execute? How do we know he will do all these things? Because he is Yahweh of hosts. 
He is the commander of heaven, and heaven will be mobilized to do everything he desires it to do. And in light of that, we have talked about in the book of Zechariah so many different visions that have happened in one night. Visions, as you remember, they're in what we call a chiastic or kind of sandwich parallelism where the first vision parallels the last, and the second vision parallels the second to last, and the third vision parallels the third to last, and so on. And we have covered things about the nations, how God has a plan for every single nation to be conquered and to conquer, but ultimately to be conquered by the Lord Jesus Christ, who has dominion in the end. And not only that, but God controls even the flow of evil in these nations. He is in control of it to destroy it. And therefore, that is part of his plan for the nations. We understand he has a plan for Israel to bless them so that one day in Jerusalem, Jerusalem will be a sprawling city. There will be no walls. It'll be like city upon city, just one massive metropolis that you can't see from one end to the other. And it will not have physical walls, but God in Zechariah chapter 2 says it will have the wall of fire of God surrounding the city. And not only that, but the glory of God will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And so God will be on the outside of them. God will be within them. God will envelop them. And that is what he promises to them for the future. There will be blessing, but at the same time, there will be accountability as there will be a flying scroll, so to speak, the standard of the word of God living and active that will either purify those who are his own or purge out those who are imposters. And it is a stark reminder of our accountability to the Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of whom, you have at the center of all the visions, the Messiah. The Messiah, he is both priest and king. The culmination of bringing us to God and bringing God to us. He's the perfect mediator of the glory of God. And so what you have in the book of Zechariah and all these visions is just so many promises with so much glory, and it's so overwhelming. And you might say, okay, how do, though, what you originally talked about with all this angelic and supernatural activity, how does all of that fit around that? And why, specifically, does the book of Zechariah, having talked about nations and Israel and the Messiah, why in the final vision does it have God launching out these angels in chariots and horses and the like. Why does God do that? What's the point of all that? Well, to put it simply, talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. And we know that. We tell our children, hey, you got to do this chore. Hey, you got to do this homework. Hey, you got to do this, that, and the other. The phrase is, I'll do it later. And we know what they mean by later. Later means when we're dead. (laughs) And we laugh about that with our children, but what do we, and me particularly, what do we always say when asked to do something? Oh, yeah, I'll do that. Oh, yeah, of course I want to work on that. Oh, yeah, I'd love to do all these things. What's that a way of saying? I'm not going to do any of what I'm saying. (laughs) Talk is cheap. And it's not just in family, and it's not just in marriage. We could say it's in politics. Talk is cheap. Politicians love to talk. And it's not just state politics, city politics, or even federal politics. It can be even in student council for high school. I remember this. One time we were having student government elections in my high school. 
won't forget it. It was so ridiculous. This candidate who wanted to become ASB president for our high school got up and she said, the first thing I'm going to do as president is improve school lunches. And everyone cheered. And I'm sitting there thinking, how are you going to do that? You don't control the money. You don't do anything. You don't have power over the workers. What are you talking about? Then the next thing she said is, I'm going to resolve the debate about block scheduling. I said, you don't have any control over administration. Students are cheering even louder. You can't control that. You don't, you don't negotiate with the teachers' union as an ASB student president. And then the final thing she said before I tuned out was, she said, I'm going to put seatbelts on all the school buses. And people cheer louder. And at that point, I thought, this is ridiculous. How do you get the money to put seatbelts on school buses? And then I looked around at people and I said, why would you want seatbelts on school buses? You don't want to wear seatbelts at all. And then I looked around hard and I said, most of the people around me don't even ride the school bus. <laughs> Didn't matter. People were cheering. And at that moment, I just tuned out and I started doing my homework much more profitable. Talk is cheap. Talk is cheap. Anyone can talk. Anyone can make promises. Anyone can make guarantees. Anyone can do anything. And here, God has made promises. Seven visions worth of promises. Spectacular. Affirming what he has said. And why does he now send his angels? It's simple. Because talk is cheap. And the way God ends this vision is to show, I'm not just talking. I'm not just talking. He has mobilized heaven. He has worked on the most powerful, the most effective level, and that is the level of the supernatural. And there's an important lesson in this. Though you may not see God at work, that doesn't mean he's not. Though you may not see God at work, that does not mean nothing is happening. Because there is not just the natural realm by which we live in, there is the supernatural realm. And the way that reality, and let me say that again, the way that reality works is that the natural does not control the supernatural. The supernatural determines the natural. Think from Genesis 1.1. Is it the natural that created the supernatural or the supernatural that created the natural? We understand what it is. God created heavens and earth. That's the way this works. The supernatural always wins. The supernatural is sovereign. And therefore, if God is mobilized on the supernatural level, you know that there is much activity, though you may not see. Though you may not see. It reminds me of what Augustine once said. He said, the problem is not that you do not have, or that God is not visible. The problem is you do not have the right eyes to see the visible God. That is his point. And indeed, this is the issue. We need to remember that even though you can't see sometimes what God is doing, it doesn't mean nothing is happening. God has not forgotten. He has not lost track of everything. He has not abandoned his people. And what we have to remember for us and what Zechariah 6 concludes with is that God has mobilized all of heaven for all of his promises. He is not dormant. He is not stagnant. He has activated his angels to fight for and to advance things 
for us. We are not alone. We have not been abandoned. We are not by ourselves. And Yahweh is not dormant. He is on the move. And all of heaven is with him. He is Yahweh of hosts. And that is how the vision concludes. To assure and give comfort to God's people that everything he has said, it's not just talk. He's already become actionable on all of it. And that is key. And the way that the text, the way that the vision is laid out is in two parts to that very end. It first shows that God is all ready. He is completely ready. That's found in verses 1 through 3. And in verses 4 through 8, what is he all ready to do? Simply, all things, all promises. He is ready, all ready, and he is all ready to do all that he has promised. And so with that in mind, let's talk about that first point that God is already verses one through three verses one through three of Zechariah chapter six the opening words are that I again lifted up my eyes and saw this is a frequent refrain in Zechariah's vision and this is the final time that this refrain occurs, marking out the last vision that he will see. This is the last time that he will have this in this spectacular evening. And again, with that, we remember that these visions are all parallel. And this one being the last one is paralleled with the first one. And so to really understand what is going on in this vision and the stance of God and the determination of God, what you have to do is compare and contrast. You have to look at the last vision and compare it to the first vision. And the differences that ensue, the complementary things that ensue, all of that makes the point of what is going on in this last vision and so to that end here is Zechariah he lifts up his eyes he sees and behold there are four let's start right there four before in the first vision Zechariah beholds not four but three but three so you got an upgrade you got four now and you might say well why are there four hosts Why are there four groups of chariots? Why are there four groupings of angels as opposed to three previously? Well, the number three, like the number four, it demonstrates the notion of fullness. It does demonstrate the notion of completeness. That is true. But they demonstrate completeness in different ways. The number three, even in the first vision, it demonstrates the number of completeness relative to activity relative to activity. In fact, we even do this in the modern language. We say, three, two, one, go. We understand for some reason that three is the number of activity. In Zechariah chapter one, it is that you have war and you have victory and you have everything in between. Those are the three things. It's the fullness of God's divine intervention. But the number four in Scripture has a different emphasis on completeness. It's about completeness relative to geography. It's a completeness relative to location. For example, you have the four winds of heaven. The four winds of heaven. You see that in Revelation chapter 7. Or in Isaiah chapter 11, it talks about the four corners of the earth. 
That's the fullness of location. That's the fullness and breadth of geography. Or in Ezekiel chapter 1, you have this repetition of four wings, four legs, four faces, over and over and over, the number four is used. Why? Because the emphasis in Ezekiel is that these angels, they are looking in every cardinal direction, forward, backward, left and right, north, south, east, west. They can move anywhere. God's presence goes everywhere and is everywhere. And therefore, once again, the emphasis is on direction. The emphasis is on location. The emphasis is on geography, even Earlier in the book of Zechariah, you had four horns and four craftsmen representing the four major nations of the world in history. We're talking about every single nation collectively put together in four different major locations that they stem from. Again, once again, it is about the breadth of location, the breadth of geography, the breadth of nations. That is what is talked about. And so when you have the number four here, in the final vision, as opposed to the first one, which had the number three, the emphasis is clear. The emphasis is simply this. God is about to go everywhere. He's about to intervene in everything. He's about to do everything, not just in activity, but in every location possible. And this is important. This is important because it reminds us about the nature of what it means for God to keep a promise. Sometimes we think, well, look, I asked for something from God. I gave a request. How hard could it be for him to just do what I asked him to do? He just has to do it in my life. It's a lot more complicated than that sometimes. Sometimes when you're running late in the airport, you say, God, just help me to catch my flight. Do you know how complicated that is? (laughs) You're not the only one on the plane. And the plane is not the only one in the sky. And there's weather, and there's other airplanes, and there's air traffic, and there's companies, and there's stewardesses, and pilots. You just ask for one thing, and you say, it's so easy. God has to control the whole world to make it happen. And what does God say here? I'm so committed. I've mobilized heaven to control everything on earth so that what I want to happen will happen. Do you want to know how faithful God is to his people Here is how faithful he is. He says, I will move all of heaven and earth to make sure that what must happen for the benefit of my people will happen. That's how faithful he is. He's not just faithful in your life. That's true. But to be faithful in your life, he has to control everything. And what we mean by everything is everything around you. And God says, with four hosts of heaven... He says, and I will. I will. That is his message in part to Zechariah. Four horses, four chariots, and speaking of which, that's the next word. It's not just four. Four of what? Four chariots. Before, in the first vision, you didn't have chariots. You had horses. Now, you might say, well, horses are connected with chariots. Yes, but chariots are not necessarily connected with horses. And so there's a reason why, though, that you had horses in the first vision and chariots here. You see, horses, they're multi-purpose kind of animals and instruments back in the day. Yes, they can ride to war, but they can also ride to reconnaissance. Chariots, they're kind of a single-use vehicle. You do not use chariots in reconnaissance, no more than you would use your largest tank to go spy out on the enemy. 
It's just really, really obvious and really, really loud, and therefore you really, really don't do that. <laughs> but horses can maneuver, and horses sometimes were sent to spy out the enemy land so that you could go see from afar, people can't make out the figure, and then you could retreat very quickly. And that's what you have in chapter 1. You have God watching. You have God doing reconnaissance. You have God commissioning a report. But here, we're not in the reporting stage anymore. We're not in reconnaissance anymore. There's only one reason why you have a chariot. It's because you're riding to war because you're riding to war. And at this moment, what we have learned is that God has four because he's about to shake up the entire world and he's not just going to observe it. He's not just going to watch it. He's not just going to look at it and to get a report about it. He is there to make some noise. He is there to intervene. He is there to fight. And that means he's not passive. He is active. He is not watching. He is going to war. This is no longer just talk. This is activity. That is what God has said. And it's not just that he's going to fight. Notice the next phrase of chapter 6, verse 1. It says that this is the four chariots going out. Going out. Now, if you have remembered what happened in the previous chapter, that phrase, going forth or going out or went out, all of those kinds of language, they are used repeatedly in the previous chapter, in the last two visions, visions six and seven, for the activity of God. What you have, for example, turn back to chapter five for a second, and let me just highlight it. For example, chapter five, verse three. There's a scroll that goes out across the face of the earth. And God says, I will cause it, verse 4, to go out. And then what happens? An angel, verse 5, goes out. And what happens? Then they look up and he looks at what is, verse 5 at the end, going out. And then he sees angels carrying a basket. And what are these angels doing? They are, verse 9, going out. Do you hear? Go out, go out, go out, go out, go out, over and over and over again. That is the activity of God's promises. That is the activity of his word. That is even the progression of evil. It goes out. If these, and since these angels are going out, they go out with the mission. This isn't just a fight to fight. This isn't violence for violence sake. This isn't intervention for the sake of intervention. It has a purpose. And what is the purpose? To do exactly what was said in the visions. As Ezekiel saw the flying scroll go out, as Ezekiel saw the flying ephah go out, signaling the very purpose of God's plans, these angels go out the same way because their job is to execute that very mission. They're fighting to make it happen. And so this isn't just a fight for the sake of fighting. This is a fight to fulfill the promises of God. That is their explicit mission. They are fighting to fulfill the promises of God. And not only will they fulfill it, they will finish it. They will finish it. This is critical as well. After all, that's what makes talk cheap, is that you always say you're going to do something, and then you never do it. It reminds me sometimes of certain kinds of students. They have big plans. 
Very, very big. Oh, I'm going to do this project. It's going to be amazing. Here's my proposal. I've got it all done. And, and then you start saying, are, are you doing your assignment? Are you, going to, are you actually going to follow through on it? And Oh, I'm really preparing. And then it's the day before the assignment, and they come to you. I was so excited, and I'm equally excited now asking you for an extension. <laughs> you can talk a big game, but if you can't finish, then it's just talk. And God says and shows to Zechariah, I'm going to finish. You say, how so? It's not just that we have chariots and God is riding to war. It's not just that they go out so that he's driving and fulfilling his promises. Where do these chariots ride between? Between two mountains. Everyone see that in the text of verse 1. Two mountains. In fact, it actually says in Hebrew, the mountains. Because these are famous mountains. And so the question is, what two mountains, what two famous mountains are we talking about? There are only two very, very famous mountains that are mentioned in this context of Zechariah. Two famous mountains, really, for the nation of Israel, truly. And that is this, the Mount of Olives and Mount of Zion of Jerusalem. The Mount Olives and Mount of Zion for Jerusalem. And here's what's interesting. In the first vision, because we're supposed to compare and contrast the two, in the first vision, Zechariah sees these three horsemen riding through a ravine, riding through the low point. He actually sees them riding in the valley Kidron, the valley in between the two mountains. And now he doesn't see the valley. He sees the mountains that form the valley. That's what God has him see in the end. You see, the reason that the angels rode in the valley was because the valley was the place where kings before retreated, where kings ran away. It was the point where they were defeated, that is Israel. And so the angels are riding there to tell Zechariah, don't worry, Zechariah, God's going to change everything around. He's going to turn the tide. The place of defeat will become victory. But in the end, what does God show in the final vision? The final vision, he says, we've already turned and we're already turning around defeat into victory. Let me show you the victory. Don't look at the ravine anymore. Look at the what? The mountains. And you say, well, what's the victory on those mountains? What's the victory on those mountains? It's an amazing victory. It's an amazing victory. In fact, it's so victorious. Notice they're not just called two mountains. They're actually called that. They're actually mentioned that these two mountains are mountains of what? Bronze. Bronze in scripture as a material is used to highlight holiness and triumph and glory. It's used that way in Ezekiel chapter 1. It is used that way of the Lord Jesus Christ and his own uh, depiction in Revelation chapter 1. There is an immense burning holiness of God, purity that is impenetrable, and that is bronze. And these mountains are made of bronze because they are purified. They are made holy. It's not just enough to finish the job. You got to finish it well. You got to finish it well. And God says, I will finish it well. What happens on these two mountains? Well, Zechariah has and will make it very obvious to us. On one of the mountains, Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 will narrate the story. In Zechariah chapter 14, it says this, that in the worst day of Israel's existence in history, in the future, when they are facing national extinction, not just exile, extinction, 
There will be a moment when they think that everyone has abandoned them and even their God has abandoned them and where all the kings would have abandoned them on the Mount of Olives. When they think all hope is lost in this moment, they will see the Lord Jesus Christ and he will be standing where? On the Mount of Olives. And you say, why stand there of all places? Is it just because it's a tall place? Yes, it is a tall place. That's true. But there's a reason. Because in Israel's history, the Mount of Olives was always the place of defeat. The Mount of Olives was always the place where kings ran away, where kings fled. David, when he fled Absalom, 2 Samuel makes it clear, he went over the Mount of Olives. When King Zedekiah was running for his life and fled, he fled through the Kidron Ravine over the Mount of Olives. Every time there is a fleeing king, he flees over the Mount of Olives. It's even for that very reason. Where is Jesus tested on the night that he was betrayed on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is on the Mount of Olives? The temptation is clear. Everyone before you, every king before you, he fled. So just run. No one would blame you, Christ. Because every king before you, that's where he's turned and run. But our Lord did not flee. Instead of running east, he turned back to Jerusalem and died for his people. And that is why he ascends from the Mount of Olives. And what do the angels say in the book of Acts? So he will return. And Zechariah 14 says, he will come back to that very mountain. And on that mountain, when he stands there and Israel sees him, they will know that this time, even though in their history the pattern has always been that kings abandoned them there, this time it will not be so. Their king will be there to save them. And therefore, at this moment, the Mount of Olives will split in two, one half north, one half south. Why? Because the monument that stood for defeat will be what? Defeated. And defeat will be swallowed up in victory. That's what will happen on one of the mountains. God says, that's the end. That's the end. That's what all the angels are riding out for victory. They are riding out to not only fulfill promises, not only to finish them, but to finish them well. That will, will be what takes place on the Mount of Olives. And you say, what's the other mountain? Mount Zion. What happens there? Zechariah has already made it plain. He has said that there will be a time when Jerusalem will be the highest hill, the highest place, high and lifted up, just like Christ is alone, high and lifted up. Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 52. And on top of that, they will build a temple to God on that mountain, the epicenter of his glory, so that all will know that he fills the earth with his glory and he has fulfilled his presence and glory and relationship with his people Israel. That is what will happen in the end times on Mount Zion. There will be two hills and they will be, even though in the past they were not holy, one was defeat and the other one, Mount Zion, was filled with idolatry throughout most of Israel's history. They will be made holy to the point where even in Isaiah chapter 11, it says this, they will do no harm on my holy mountain. It will be so holy that there will be no wickedness done there any longer. And God to Zechariah says, these are the two hills. These are the two mountains. This is the end game. 
this is the end result, I will win. And when you see those two mountains changed, you will know that I have done everything in all of my promises to all my people. That is what God announces in this opening. He is dedicated to everything. And this is an important point about eschatology. You see, sometimes, and I understand it, eschatology, we we view it as a subject to debate. And there is interpretation required, and there is a lot of skill required, and we understand that. Sometimes when we think about eschatology, we think that there is difficulty of interpretation. And that's true in the sense that you have to work hard at it. It doesn't come easy. That's true. But what God was giving Zechariah was not a vision that he just had to wade through and interpret or had to start a debate about. He gave him a promise. He gave him a promise. And he told Zechariah in this vision to tell the people of God, to tell Israel, to tell all this, look to the two mountains. Because one day, God will change those mountains. And one mountain will be the demonstration that defeat has been defeated and the other mountain will be high because the presence of God will rule everything. Look to the two mountains. That will be there. It is a fact. It's a promise. Eschatology is not always about debate, and it's not ultimately about a debate. It's about God's promise. It's about God's gift to his own. It's about God's guarantee. That is what he gave to his people. Well, to accomplish this, God sends out four, four to go to the ends of the earth, four to fight as chariots, four to fulfill the promises of God as they go out, four to finish the job and finish it well as we saw those two mountains, the culmination of all the promises of God and all that ensues. And what God has commissioned this angelic host to do, as we see in verses two and three, is to engage in everything. Now we have different colored horses. And there are more horses than in the first vision, so there are more colors of horses than the first vision. We have red horses. What does that stand for? War. Why does war matter? Because war, if you think about it on a very fundamental level, it's the disruption of society. It's the disruption of society, of nations, of international community. So God has the red horses go, and God has black horses go. Horses that are black stand for famine, famine. And you say, what's that a disruption of? Easy, economy, economy. Because when you disrupt the food supply, or put it simply, when you disrupt the supply chain, we know everything gets disrupted. We've got good experience with that. Then you have the white horses. They stand for victory as they bring everything to God. And then you have the dappled horses, which can also be understood as pale horses, cross-reference the book of Revelation, And that stands for death itself. And you know what death is a disruption of? Easy. Life. And here's what God says. You want to know how far I will go? You want to know how far and the extent of my power to exert all of these things and what I've authorized to be done? He says this. I will send war and famine and death. I will disrupt all of society and international politics and the world and economies and entire life. If it takes and if it's required to bring about victory, I will do that. 
sometimes we wonder, is there something that could stand in the way of God's promises? Well, it's not the world, it's not money, and it's not anything that lives. God says, I have authorized my angels to disrupt and to overthrow it all, to give my people what I promised them. Now, the final word is that these angels, these horses that go out, it says in the last phrase, all of them are mighty. And I think that's the understatement of the season. All of them are mighty. All of them have the power to overcome because that's their job. That's their job. Here's the question. Is God just talk? Is God just talk? And the answer is no. When you have a God ready to shake the world, when you have a God who has commissioned his heavenly hosts to disrupt everything, life and society and economics, when you have a God who is so determined, he is ready to fight and he's going to fight to finish everything and to finish everything well, that is the God who is not just talk, he's truly faithful. And when you want to talk about, oh, God is faithful to me, and we sing the hymn, great is thy faithfulness. We know he's loyal. We know he loves us. We know he doesn't fail us. But do you realize how faithful he is? And sometimes we don't because we don't have eyes to see. And that's why Zechariah chapter 6, verse 1, I lifted up my eyes and I saw. God gave him heavenly vision, supernatural insight to see what we normally could never see. And here's what you see. You want to know how faithful God is to you? This is how faithful he is. He mobilizes all of heaven to do everything across the world, to disrupt entire nations just so that he can give you what he promised to you. That's how faithful he is. Everything is on the table for God in his faithfulness to you. He takes nothing off of it. That is the level and intensity of his faithfulness. That is how sure he is. How ready is he? He is all ready. And yes, To be sure, as we will see, this kind of faithfulness reaches its culmination and most visible point in eschatology, but this is the nature of our God. He doesn't do just the bare minimum for his people. He does everything in his power, and he is omnipotent. Well, we have seen in the opening part of this vision, God is ready. God is ready. He has armed heaven. He has commissioned them to fight. He has urged them to fulfill his promises. They will finish it, and they will finish it well. But this leads us to the second point. God is not just all ready. He's ready to do all things. He's ready to do all things. And that's the question. God is ready. We've seen that. And we see he's going to accomplish so much. But what is exactly he going to do? And in light of that, verse 4, I answered and I said to the angel who was speaking with me, what are these, my Lord? What Zechariah is asking is, what are these angelic hosts going to do? What is the significance of all that I'm going to see? What is the weight and the impact that they are going to carry out? And what the angel is about to do in his explanation to Zechariah in very condensed form is he's going to start listing every promise of every vision that has taken place in this one single night. And by doing so, he tells Zechariah, these angels, 
They're going to do everything I just showed you. They're going to do every single thing. I have a plan. I have it all managed. I have it all under control. And they will do every single thing. And that starts with, notice, in verse 5, the angel answered and said, these are four spirits of heaven. Four spirits of heaven. With the word spirits, we know that these angels are supernatural and they're angels. We understand that. But the word spirits is important because the word spirit is tied with the word wind. These angels are specifically described as spirits because it connects them back to what Zechariah saw in previous visions. For example, in the seventh vision, the wind carries the angels carrying the ephah to Babylon. Likewise, in the third vision, there are four winds of the earth that scatter Israel and then regather Israel. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6, and what do we hear here? We hear four winds, four spirits, four angels in that way. And why? Because these four spirits, these four winds, what are they supposed to do? They are the ones who will facilitate and ensure and execute and implement the progression of evil in this world. They are the ones who will also be responsible and have been responsible in the immediate causation of God to disperse Israel and to regather them. And to regather them. God says, do you remember, Zechariah, what I told you in your third vision? Do you remember what I told you in the seventh vision? We're doing that. We're doing that. They have been commissioned to do that. By the way... By the way, this is confirmed that these four angels will be responsible to do these kinds of things because in Revelation 7, 1, it says this, there were four angels holding back the winds of the earth as God was preparing the world for judgment to judge sin and to regather his people and redeem them, that is the nation of Israel. What God said in Zechariah and showed him, he does it exactly in the book of Revelation. No difference. And notice these four winds of heaven, these four spirits of heaven, they, as the text says, they go out. And you should remember that that word go out is a key word. It is found in the sixth and seventh visions of Zechariah. And in those two visions, we have the progression of judgment in Israel. We have the progression of evil in this world. And what God says, and this should be such an encouragement to all of us, is that what God argued with and God demonstrated with that ephah, with the woman in the ephah, all of those things combined, is that wickedness is contained. And wickedness goes along the course God has said. Sometimes we look at this world and we see the evil and we just think things are out of control. What God reminds Zechariah in one of those visions, the seventh vision, is that at this time, fascinatingly enough, if you remember the illustration Wickedness is like an ephah basket. It's small. If you remember what Joe showed us last week, it's not big. And you say, well, evil looks a lot bigger than that. Yeah, to us, but not to God. It's totally under his control. And then the woman of evil, the wicked woman who is stuffed into an ephah, symbolizing religious harlotry and false worship, she fit in that basket She's contained. You think the world is so terrible, and do not get me wrong, of course it's terrible. We understand it. And on one hand, you haven't seen anything yet. That is what the Bible is acknowledging. But on the other hand, there's a reason you haven't, because our God is the restrainer. 
Our God is the restrainer. We have no right to complain. We may feel vexed in our heart and cry out to God. That is the proper response, to be sure. We might cry out how long. That is the proper response, to be sure. But we can never think God has lost control. To him, it's just an ephah basket size. To him, the woman of wickedness fits within. And his point to Zechariah is this, and I've commissioned all of heaven to make sure it will be so. It will be so. And so, these angels, they go out. There are four spirits. And now we have visions three and six and seven. And notice what the text says, and I love this. Don't miss this. It says, they went out from standing before the Lord of all the earth. In the description, and as Zechariah observes, he sees who these angels are commanded by. And who is commanding them? Not just Yahweh, but when you are Yahweh of all the earth, the Lord of all the earth, when you are specifically having that title, that title is the title that is given to God specifically when he returns, when Christ returns and rules over the entire earth. Every time, with two exceptions, that this title is used in the Bible, predominantly in the Psalms, it is always when God returns. And he's about to rule over the earth. Why? Because that's when you really see he is Lord over all the earth. And it's for this very reason, how can you have such authority? How can you have such dominion? Well, it's the only one who can have all authority and power is God. And that's why this phrase is used in the fifth vision of Zechariah, the lampstand vision. In the lampstand vision, it says this, that the two olive trees pour into one lampstand. The two become one, and it represents in Hebrew the sons of oil, the anointed ones joining together, and it says this, before the Lord of all the earth. Who are the two offices that were anointed? Priest and king. Why? Priests bring you to God. Kings bring God down to you and those two will be one and who is the one who brings you to god the lord of all the earth who's the one who brings god to you the lord of all the earth and that's why there's like i said most of the time the word lord of all the earth it is used to talk about the millennial reign of christ because then his dominion in that manner is seen most clearly but there are two exceptions and you say what are the two exceptions when it talks about God's presence on the Ark of the Covenant. It says, who is the one who dwells between the cherub? The Lord of all the earth. Why? Because God alone has that kind of might, and Christ alone is the one who, because he unites both offices, brings God to us as he brings us to God, because he is who? God. That's why. That's why. And at this moment, if you put all of that together, here's what you learn. Christ didn't just command these angels. These angels went from Christ to do everything for Christ. That's what Zechariah understood. Zechariah understood that these angels, yes, they, com- they were commanded by Christ, and they went out so that they would do everything so that in the end, 
Christ would be understood to be what he always inherently is, which is Lord of all the earth. The one who rules over everything. The one who will rule in the millennial kingdom. The one who brings the glory of God to man. After all, what is one of the names for Jesus? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. He is Lord of all the earth. And he's the one who brings God to us and us to God. Why? Because he's perfect king and priest. Why? Because he is God himself. The very glory God himself. And the angels, their job is to make sure that that will happen for us, that we will see that in the end. And with that, you have the third vision, the fifth vision, the sixth vision, the seventh vision. God says, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to do all those things. And then the visions continue. And God says, I'm going to send the black horses. They're going to go out to the land of the north. Where is the land of the north? Babylon. That's the seventh vision. God will ensure that famine will starve out evil and it will be conquered. That's why it's not just that the black horses go out to Babylon, but then it says after that, the white horses follow in its place. Why? Because there will be victory over them. And then it says that the dappled horses, they will go to the south. That's toward Egypt. And you might say, wait a minute here. If I'm reading this correctly, you got black horses to the north, white horses after them, and dappled horses to the south. That's three horses. But you've emphasized how many horses, how many kinds of chariots are there? Four. What happened to the other one? Red horses. Good question. They didn't go anywhere. That's why they're not mentioned. They stay in Israel. And you say, why do they stay in Israel? Because God promised in the end times there would be great war in Israel. Great war in Israel. In fact, in Revelation chapter 14, it says that the entire land, the entire length of the land will be embroiled into war and that there will be such bloodshed that if you stomped on the ground, the blood would spatter up to the horse's bridle. That's the intensity of slaughter. That's the red horse, the horse of bloodshed, the horse of war. And do you remember there was a promise that God made? A flying scroll would go across the land, one that would symbolize the word of God and the holiness and the holy accountability of God. And with that accountability came judgment. And you either were purified or you were purged. Well, when there's war like that in Israel, that's exactly what will happen. The righteous will become purified and the unrighteous will be purged out. And that's a vision. That's vision number six. That's vision number six. Now, If you followed along so far, you have horses going to the north and horses going to the south. And you wonder, why don't you send horses east and west? Because in Israel, you don't need to. The west is an ocean. And, you know, we're not aquatic horses or something like that. And you don't have really enemies coming from that direction. And on the east side, you have the deadly desert and you also have the cliffs of insanity. No enemy comes through that direction. You don't really have that in Israel. You only have attack in the north and the south, which means this. If you have attack in the north and the south, and you sent all the horses and all the angelic forces to take them out, you've taken rid of all of Israel's enemies. All of them are gone. They're all done. And that fulfills another vision. Vision number two. In vision number two, God says, I saw four, and reveals that there were four horns destroyed by four craftsmen. All of Israel's enemy, all bad nations, they will be destroyed. And God says, and I've ensured my angels will take care of that as well. Here's what we need to realize. 
You want to know what God has ensured to happen? He's ensured that every nation will be dealt with. Israel will be regathered and exalted. Evil will not only be contained, it will go according to God's plan, but it will be vanquished. And not only will evil be vanquished, every enemy will be vanquished as well. When Christ returns, there will be, in the end, no enemies. No enemies. Think about that. As we think about this world and we just think of so much struggle and we think of so much opposition, in the end, there will be none. God will eradicate it all, and he has mobilized heaven to do that. Now, you might say, okay, I'm kind of lost. I feel like I know we got seven visions to go through because we're in the eighth one, and, and we have every single one going through, and, and I, think, I think we have visions two, three, five, six, and seven listed so far. And if you've got that, you're pretty good because you're right. And if you said, I didn't get that, that's okay because it makes an important point. And the point is this. Good. I'm glad you're a little lost. It's on purpose. The vision did it for us. And you say, why? Because God makes so many promises we can't even keep track. God makes so many promises we can't even keep track. And here's the thing on top of that. He's so faithful, we can't even manage. We couldn't even begin to manage all of these different things. But God tells Zechariah, I will. I will. And that's the nature of God's faithfulness. He is so good that he makes more than we can contain, more than we can number, and he's so faithful that he has it all even though we don't. We don't. That's the level of his faithfulness. But if you're wondering, we have two visions left counting, and we have two verses left. See, they fit hand in hand. Verse 7 deals with vision 1. Verse 8 deals with vision 4. And in verse 7, here's what you see. You have the mighty angels. They go out, they seek, and what you learn is the first vision will be fulfilled. Why? Because these angels that go out, as we mentioned before, because they're chariots, they're not just watching. They're not just doing reconnaissance. They are there to patrol the earth. They are there not just to report back to God. There could be an issue here, there, or the other. They are there to immediately interdict, to immediately divert, to immediately enforce and implement and intercept. That's what they're there to do. That's why they are patrolling all over the earth, to make sure history will go exactly like God has planned. That's what you have to understand. Sometimes we think this world is out of control and it's just going nuts and going crazy. That may be the way it appears to us, but it's always God's plan. Put it this way, God never has a plan B. He doesn't need one because it's always a plan A. That's what's happening here. And he has made sure that all of heaven ensures that that takes place. So the first vision is fulfilled. And here is the culmination of everything. And it is the fourth vision, the final one that is fulfilled. And I love this, verse 8. Here's God, here's Yahweh revealing it, and here's what he says. And then he cried out. For an angel of Yahweh, or for, the, for Yahweh himself to cry out with joy, you know it's got to be something good. You know it's got to be something good. And he says this to Zechariah. See, those who have gone out to the land of the north, they have given my spirit rest. 
That word rest is a very important word in Scripture. It goes back, like I said, to the fourth vision, where at the end, when Christ returns, and because he's the perfect priest, he brings man to God and unites man with God because he is God himself, God incarnate, Emmanuel, God with us. It says this, that there will be rest on earth so that everyone sits under their vine and their fig tree. That's the very language used in the kingdom of Solomon, the golden era of Israel. And the reason that relates to rest is that it goes all the way back to this guy named Noah, whose name means rest. And what did Noah do when God restored the world after the flood? He planted what? A vineyard. He planted a vine and it grew the vine is always a symbol, always connected with and associated with the, God's program of rest. But there is a promise here that there will be a greater rest. How do we know that? Because Psalm 95 reminds us that even though God gave his people the land, that there's still a rest that remains for them. Psalm 95 says that. And it's not just a physical rest. It has to be a spiritual rest. Why? Because in Matthew 11, what does our Lord say? Come to me, all you are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. And then we know, though, that that has to still yet be future, both spiritual and physical components of this rest. Why? Because in Hebrews 3 and 4, it says, let us, those who are believers, enter into his what? rest. If there is a rest that remains for us to be entered, it has not happened yet because there will be a better spiritual and a fuller physical rest and it will be akin to the original rest. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, after God had finished everything, what did he do on the Sabbath day? He what? Rested. And that's the rest that we are looking for. And notice what the text says in Zechariah chapter 6. It's not just that we have rest, like an Edenic rest. That's true. But the reason we have an Edenic rest is why? Because it says, they will give my spirit rest. God will rest on that day. We will have the true Sabbath in the end. That's why God cries out. And you say, why is specifically the third person of the Trinity, the Spirit at rest. It's simple. It's because the Spirit has been at work throughout all of these visions. The Spirit is the one who drives forth God's plan. The Spirit is the one in Zechariah chapter 4 where we remember the famous phrase, not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit. He is the one who empowers the saints to do their work. He is the one ultimately who works with the Messiah to glorify the Messiah in the end. That's what we see in Zechariah chapter 4. And on top of that, it is the Spirit's work who dwells within believers to bring the presence of God to man. And that will be fulfilled in the end when God's glory fills the earth. So when the Spirit is at rest, what does that mean? All of his work is done. His work of driving God's plan. His work of empowering your life. Think about this. God has a plan to work out sanctification and ministry in your life, and it will be done. The Spirit will have rest in the end. He will finish that work in you. And His work also to empower and to portray the glory of the Messiah will be done, and His presence will be in us and through us and around us forever when all of that is done then he will be at rest and when he is at rest we all are at what rest and brothers and sisters that's why the angel cries out for joy because he knows that moment and his point to Zechariah is all of heaven is working so that in the end you and I and God himself will have 
rest. That is what God will do. Do you want to know all that God will do? Do you want to, if you ever wonder, will God keep all of his promises? Zechariah 6 says this, I just listed off every single vision and every promise in every single vision, and God has conventioned all of heaven to do it. God is not just talk. He is the God of action, and action to do everything. And you say, well, it's a vision, though. Are we really sure God will do that? Revelation 6, do you remember what John sees? He sees four horses, different colors, same colors as the one in Zechariah. And here's what God basically says to John. These horses are about to take one last ride. One last ride. They've been riding since the time of Zechariah to get us to this point. And I'm about to reveal to you, God says to John, their final ride. When they finish what I showed to Zechariah all those years ago, God will complete it to the end. Now, how do you take all this in? How do you take all this in? And I ask your pardon for going over a little bit, but I think this is worth it. We are writing this commentary on Zechariah and you know, you have to send it to your boss, so we send it to Dr. MacArthur. And he writes me a text, and the text is great because he says, Abner, we have to delete your ending for Zechariah chapter 6. I need to rewrite it all. And I said, okay, whatever, you're the boss. And he says, Zechariah 6 has so captured my heart. He says, I have to figure out a way to get my arms around all that I've just read. So this is what he wrote. What does a man so captured by this final vision, like Zechariah was captured by this final vision, what does he write? And this is what, well, Lord willing, being in the commentary, unless Nate Business edits it out. Uh, we won't let him, don't worry. He says this, the eighth and final vision of Zechariah is the sum of all other visions, demonstrating in powerful, stunning, dramatic productions from heaven that God remembers all of his promises, and he secures their fulfillment by his immutable character and word. Though his people cannot always see his invisible power, God reminds the saints that he rules every material and spiritual reality in existence, and in the future, as prophetically revealed by Zechariah, Yahweh of hosts will send his angelic hosts throughout all Israel and the earth to execute the judgment and the salvation he showed to his prophet Zechariah on the 24th day of the month of Shabbat in the second year of Darius. To all who still wonder where is the promise of his coming, the answer was given 1,500 years ago in the holy and true word of the Spirit of God to the grandson of a Jew called Edo when he heard Yahweh saying, Yahweh was very wrathful against your fathers. Therefore say to them, thus says Yahweh of hosts, return to me that I may return to you. With that, Zechariah was given visions to comfort God's people of all generations, revealing that Israel will return in repentance and faith in the rejected Christ and be given the blessings of God's covenant salvation. Those blessings will extend to all those who believe in him. These promises will come through Christ, the Lord over all the earth. For as many as are the promises of God, in him they are yes and amen. Amen.